uh, it says uh, we become willing to make the amends. Uh, somebody said one time that we don't have to. This isn't the going to jail uh, step. It's the next step that's going to jail step. This is just the willing to go to jail step. So uh, if you look at it that way, you know, it's just making that list. It doesn't say that you're necessarily going to go right out and make the amends when you put that person down on the list. And it's not always just a person. It may be uh, a person, uh, an institution or a place, you know, stuff like that. Um, I had I had one one woman that uh, owed amends to the army. It was bad. I thought she was going to take take them one at a time, one soldier at a time. She was going to make that amends, but she did it all to one. Um, now we're willing. We have our list, and our and we are willing after we've suggested. Now I see that we subjected ourselves to self drastic self appraisal as a principle. Because it's not just for the eighth step. It's for my life today. I always need to do that. I need to really look at me uh, and check my motives for everything that I, that I do, especially if I see a favorable outcome for me in the deal. I need to do that. Um, now we get the ninth step. And it says, now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. And uh, that's the ninth step. So we have the eighth and ninth step right there in that paragraph. I usually break up an amends list uh, in uh, now, uh, first I put uh, now, never, uh, maybe later. I think that's how it is. Is that correct, Donna? <laughs> I don't have that written. I don't have that written down in this book. This is just my little workbook. <laughs> right. Um, I can tell you right now that very seldom is it never. And if it's never, it's only because uh, God has not seen fit for it to take place. Because if I think it's never, it usually happens right away. I'm reminded that the step says we make direct amends wherever. It does not say whenever. Whenever would leave the option to me. Wherever says wherever the opportunity arises. And for some reason, God has seen fit to put people that I owe amends to in my life that I never thought I'd ever see again. Um, today, I, I make uh, little index cards, and um, I have a visual deal that when I make the amends, I write on there the, the person I owe the amends to and why I owe the amends as far as I know that I owe and what is the amend that I owe. But it's important for me to remember that uh, the book has told me that the alcoholic life is the only one that I know, and it seems to be the normal one. And today, I know that if what I see is different from, say, what my children saw, I have to think that uh, they were the one that were more, was more sane at the time. 
they probably saw the situation better than I did. And uh, so today when I make amends, if I have the only reason why I owe amends, it's because I am not thinking in a spiritual manner. And when I when I that's when I fall off of the spiritual wagon. That's why I owe amends. So I never see that clearly. But what I do is uh, I go and I tell the person what I think that I did and what I owe them. I think financial amends are the only ones that there's no question about. You know, if I owe amend, if I owe money, pay it. It's done. That's what it says. But I might go to somebody and I and I uh, I say, well, you know, I did this and I know that I hurt you, and they say, well, I give them an opportunity to tell me what they think I did. <laughs> And, uh, you know, maybe what they think I did and what I think I did are two different things. So they need an opportunity to tell me. Maybe I think one thing will, will uh, make up for the past because it says here, remember. Uh, well, I don't see it right here. But anyway, somewhere it says that uh, that we want to we want to do whatever it takes. It takes to. Um, to clean away, sweep away the debris which has accumulated, and uh, we're going to repair the damage done. And they may see where the damage is different than what I think the damage is. So what I do is, is I ask them, what will it take to set things straight with you? I want to do that. And sometimes it's uh, one of my children, and I have four, I've said that. It's amazing that all of them saw things differently. And I have one daughter that said, you never were here for me. Now, these are four children that were all raised at the same time, close in the same house. <laughs> and, and to me, I never treated any of them differently. And that's what she told me. So today I'm here for her. And that's how I make amends. If she calls me and she says, Mom, I'm having to have surgery and I'd like for you to come, and I go, man. I want you to know I hit the road. <laughs> I'm there for her. And what happens through that is they're there for me. Isn't that wonderful? They're there for me. And I got to experience that through, uh, through my physical difficulties. My children, my girls were there for me in the hospital and they took turns taking care of me and my youngest one was so scared and uh, she she was so scared to come and when she got there she didn't want anyone touching me <laughs> and the nurses would come in and they'd say don't touch my mama <laughs> and she would do everything for me and it, it's just uh, I mean it's terrible that we have to go through that to, to get the benefits but sometimes that's what it takes it just takes that so today I know that I'm not always a good judge of the amends that I owe or even the harm that I've done. So I always give the other person an opportunity to tell me uh, my amends are not great amends today. And that's because the harm that I cause are not real tremendous harms. I've been very fortunate for that. Most of the things that come out of, of, my, um, of my inventories are on my fear inventory. The book says that fear should be classified with stealing because it is shot through like threads in our life and it, it robs from us 
things in our life. And uh, that's exactly how fear was for me. It robbed me of a lot of things because I didn't, I was so full of fear and I had nothing to turn to other than self-sufficiency and it had failed me so much that I, uh, there were things that I didn't do that I could have done, experiences that I couldn't have, jobs that I couldn't take. It's amazing when we really start looking at how fear can steal away from us. It was amazing when I read that and started looking at my own life to see where, where, well, where had fear stolen from me? And it was there. It was only after I came in this program that I got a job and I had, when I say in the program, I mean in the steps and I got a job and I had to deal with a lot of money and I, I wasn't, I loved my job, but that was a part of the job that I, I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't really qualified for. And I, I had to tell myself over and over, I'm not going to allow this fear to take this job away from me. And man, I'd go on my day off and do my weekly report. <laughs> I was so scared I'd make a mistake. And I'd still make a mistake. But they didn't fire me. They kept me. But I was willing to bring God with me. And, and together we were able to do that job. And uh, in the ninth step, we get a prayer. It says in there, after uh, what we're going to go and clean away the debris, it says, if we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. And I have found that it's always the action that I take today that allows me to take more action tomorrow. I am a believer that everything I go through today is preparing me for what is to come tomorrow. And so I need everything that I go through. It's just a preparation. And um, so what happens is that the ones that I'm willing to make I begin to make immediately, and through that, I have the courage to and willingness come to make the remainders as they come. I have been able to make graveside amends to my parents, and uh, it, that was a wonderful experience for me because they were. Uh, my mother was still alive when I came in, but I really wasn't into all of this too much right at first, and I began to see things more clearly. And so after about my third inventory, I, I saw where I needed to do that, and she had passed away already. Uh, I, when I first started, I talked about uh, us, me finding the, my purpose. Also right here, one of the principles right under the prayer, it, it says, Remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any length for victory over alcohol. And... Uh, it's reminding us that we made that commitment in the beginning that we were going to go to any length for victory over alcohol. And in a couple of pages, I'm going to show you where it changes that statement. The tone of it changes. On the next page, it tells us our purpose now. It says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So this is where I found my purpose. And uh, at first I thought it was to be a maximum service to God and those about us. But actually it says that our real purpose is to fit ourselves. Now if I was going to be a football player, I'd have to get up every day and I'd have to do what it takes for a football player to stay fit. To play the game of football. So today every day I have to get up and do what it takes 
to be fit to play the game of life. And the way that I do that is I know that I have a threefold disease and I have to do what it takes in each part, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, to stay fit. Because unless I am fit in all three areas of, of my life, then I'm not going to be able to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. Now, I have been able to use this as a little inventory that I can take in uh, different situations in my life. And it's real simple. If I'm having a problem on a job, I can go to this and I can say, okay, can I be fit in this job? Can I be fit physically, emotionally, or spiritually? Because by this time, I ought to know what it takes. It takes me going to X amount of meetings. It takes me working with other people. It takes me working in service, general service. This job that I loved, I left through this inventory. Because it was very demanding physically and on my time. And my recovery suffered. Now, I'm not saying that I was going to drink. It never came close to that. But what did happen was that I, I was no longer having the serenity in my life. And it went one day kind of like this. My son came by the house and he was sitting there talking and I was telling him that my tale of woe. And uh, so he allowed me to go on for some time. And then he said, well, Mama, what's really wrong? This is someone with three years sobriety on me. And uh, he said, when's the last time you've been to a meeting? Have you gotten a sponsor yet? You know, I never came in and found you like this when you were really involved. And I had to take a look at that. What came out of that inventory is that uh, I found that I I was going to have to leave this job. And I did that. And it wasn't left on bad terms. It was just that uh, my priorities were out of order that it, I knew that it took certain things for me and that uh, I, I could not do what it took for me to stay fit on this job. Uh, it had gotten to a point where I saw that uh, I talked earlier about how God changes us. And uh, what happened was I saw that some of the things that I was asked to do when I first got there, I was no longer willing to do because it was against the principles in my life. And it wasn't anything illegal. It was just that I knew that I could not advance at the, uh, you know, at the cost of somebody else. I knew I couldn't do that anymore. You know, if the only way that I can make a buck is for somebody else to make 25 cents, I need to take a look at that. And so I knew that uh, this was not the job for me any longer. I have taken this little inventory with a relationship. And what has come out of that is that I have stayed because I knew that there was nowhere else that I could be more fit to fulfill the purpose that God has for me today.
and I and I stayed in that relationship, and it and it has worked for me. So I can use this whether it's with a friend or with a job, and uh, or whatever's going on in my life. Maybe it's a group. Maybe it's with a sponsor. What I have found is, uh, you know, if I. If I see that maybe my sponsor is making some suggestions to me that's against the principles that I live by today, I may have to look at, uh, you know, well, do I really need this person for a sponsor? I may need to look somewhere else. So uh, I think that this has been a, a real good tool for me. There's some other principles right in there also. It says, uh, it is seldom wise to approach an individual who smarts from our injustice to him and announce that we have gone religious. And uh, Bill draws a parallel there. Uh, it says, uh, in the prize ring, this would be called leading with the chin. And uh, I think that I've, I've, it hasn't happened to me, but I've heard several others talk about doing that. And exactly what happens is what happens in the prize ring. <laughs> He's talking about some boxers and one of the boxers sticking his chin out and getting hit on the chin. <laughs> you know, if I've, if I've caused some harm to somebody, they usually don't want to see me. And the way I can get around that is maybe I can talk to someone who knows them and say, you know, it's come a time where I'd like to talk to them. Do you think it'd be okay? Maybe they know them. Maybe it's a parent of theirs or a real good friend. And I can go through them and they might say, listen, stay away. They don't even want to see you. Well, that you know, maybe that's my first approach. I might have to wait a while. The book says on our first approach. So I might have to wait and make a second approach later on. Uh, again, in the middle of the page, the principle of, uh, it says, we don't use this as an excuse for shying away from the subject of God. So it's telling us once again that, that, uh, you know, if it comes up that, that we, we, know, we don't apologize, it's told us we don't apologize to our God, about our God. Here it says we don't make excuses for shying away from our God. It says further on in that same paragraph, with the person we dislike, we go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our former ill feeling and expressing our regret. So you see there, there's a, a twofold purpose of us going to make amends. It tells us that, you know, we're not going to be able to really get sober unless we can do this. And it tells us that it's to clean away the past for us. But then right here, it tells us it's also to forgive them for what they may have done for us, to us. We go in a forgiving spirit. And uh, I've had the opportunity to say uh, to someone... Uh, I forgive you. I forgive you. And that was a big deal for me with my last husband. Because, you see, he, you know, I would never have acted the way I acted if he wouldn't have acted the way he acted. <laughs> it, like it, it made my inappropriate behavior okay because he was acting like an idiot, you know. And he was a very violent drunk. And... Uh, I, I stayed a martyr for a long time, but when I came out, I came out swinging. <laughs> and I could go and I could say, I forgive you for the things that you did. And it, uh, I walked away with peace. Then it tells us, under no condition do we criticize such a person or argue. 
So we might go over there and they might just, I mean, come on like gangbusters. And sometimes, you know, we just have to, uh, you know, we don't lash out back at them. We don't argue with them. One of my favorite things to the, to the women that I sponsor is that, you know, once you argue, you have lost it. If you have to argue, you've lost the argument. Period. Because you have something to defend. And if, I'm def- if I have to defend something, I need to take a look at it. <laughs> so I know that I can't do that. Another thing that I use a lot is, you know, it takes two to have a conversation. One to talk and one to listen. <laughs> so sometimes we put ourselves in the position of, of uh, going off the deep end. You know, I don't have to sit and listen to a whole bunch of garbage when somebody's getting ready to dump on me about something. I have that choice today. I used to think I had to do that. That made me a better person. I don't have to do that. On the next page, we're going to get a promise. At first it says, a principle, our faults are not discussed. His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. If our manner is calm, frank, and open, this is a condition. We will be gratified with the results. That's the promise. And how often is that a a fact in my life today? If I go to someone that I need to discuss things with, or if I have a grievance again, if I can just be very calm, if I can be frank, and if I can be open, and if I don't start talking about what's wrong with them, One of the greatest lessons that I learned is if I have to talk to somebody about something is never to start the conversation with you. Because immediately when you say you, they become defensive. It's an attack. I always try, if I need to address a situation like that with someone, I start the conversation with I. Because the only reason why I need to go to them is because something is going on with me. Maybe their behavior has affected me. And maybe I am hurt. Maybe I'm in pain. Maybe I'm angry. Maybe I'm sad. Maybe I'm scared. And I start off by saying that and letting them know I am really angry. And then I tell them why. But I have taken the responsibility and I have owned my own feelings. And I let them know it's not their fault. They didn't do it to me. People don't do things to me. They just do things. And I was here a long time before I could stop saying, I can't believe she did that to me. (laughs) Today I know that I really believe that no one gets up and there, any time that I'm thinking that their main thought is, I'm out to get Dainey today. <laughs> uh, that's my self-centeredness again. Yeah. I know there's no one that I, I wake up and I think, well, I'm, I'm going to get her today. Now, maybe there was a day when I did that, but today that's not so. But before the day is over, there's a possibility that I might have harmed someone. And, and I have a step to take care of that, and that's what's coming up. It goes on to talk here about, um, I'm going to try and start watching the clock now. 
uh, and I hate doing that, but uh, in the middle of the page, it says, uh, we have a little checkpoint. It says, we must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go. And this is, this is that warning if we do not lose the fear of creditors. For we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. So this is another checkpoint for our, uh, you know, stability and sobriety. Have I lost my fear of creditors? Have I done what it takes? You know, sometimes we can lose our fear of creditors without paying back the whole amount we owe. All it takes is maybe writing a letter and, and, and acknowledging the fact that we owe some money and that we're willing to pay and we ask them to make terms. And the way we show our good faith is we include a check. <laughs> we don't just write and say we're willing to do it. We give them some money at the same time. And this says they really mean it, whether it's a dollar or five dollars, you know. And we, we tell them we are going to pay this every month. And then we pay it every month. And maybe looking at it, it might look like I'm going to be paying this back the rest of my life. Well, at least we don't have to fear it anymore because we're doing what we can do. On the next page, this is where the tone changes in reminding ourselves of going to any lengths. Now, twice it said that we're willing, we've, we've uh, made a decision that we're willing to go to any lengths for victory over alcohol for our sobriety. But on this page right now, it says, in the middle of that uh, first full paragraph, reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lengths to find a spiritual experience. So by this time in the steps, we should not necessarily just be thinking about getting away from our last drink. We should be thinking now about getting closer to our God and that spiritual experience. And it's these steps that, that have helped us to do that. And we have a prayer for that. It says, we ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing no matter what the personal consequences may be. I need strength to do the right thing all the time. And it's not that I think about doing the wrong thing all the time. It's just that it is my nature to not want to do the right thing. (laughs) I think that's just in my makeup. You know, we get here and we've lied and we've cheated and we've wheeled and dealed so long. That's the only thing we know. And it continues a lot of times after we get here. Um, It's about change. And uh, through the prayers and these principles is how the change comes about. But I, I really believe that a lot of times I have to act against what I consider my nature uh, because I've, you know, done the other way so long. In the next paragraph is another principle. We are not to be the hasty and foolish martyr who would needlessly sacrifice others to save himself from the alcoholic pit. So this tells me that I have to put others ahead of me if the only reason why I'm doing something is to save myself from the alcohol 
um, an example of this is, is they talk about, you know, if it's, it's in reference to a man that's had an affair and going and he has to go and tell his wife all of the details because that's going to save him from uh, the alcoholic pit. But, you know, there's a lot of, lot of places that we can use this principle in our life. And uh, I think it goes back to that deal about the, you know, this is a selfish program. This, that's, not a, that's not an AA term. That's a treatment term. That didn't come from AA. The book says this is a selfless program. And uh, it says that uh, we're going to do for others. It doesn't say we're going to be good to ourselves. It says we're going to be good to others all the time now. And the selfishness of that is that we do all of that because that is what saves us from alcoholism, from the drink. That's, that's really what it's saying. I become selfless to get rid of that selfishness. Okay, um, on the next page, it says at the top, before taking drastic action, which might implicate other people, we secure their consent. I think that kind of goes back to saving our own skin at the, at the uh, you know, danger of other people. Uh, we always have to think of how our behavior is going to affect someone else. And I talked about that in my own family. I never gave a thought to that. Uh, a good way to do that sometimes, if you can't get to that person, is to talk to their uh, people that are close to them. They can give you an idea how to act with that. On the next page is a prayer. On page 81, in the uh, kind of the middle of that uh, paragraph, middle paragraph, we are sorry what we have do- for what we have done, and God willing, it shall not be return- repeated. So at this point, we're telling God that we're sorry for what we have done, and, uh, and we ask him to help us. That's how, that's how I see that, you know. If God is willing that, with his help, that I'm not going to continue to repeat these things. Okay, on the next page, uh, it always amazed me that he goes through all of this list of uh, who we're going to make amends to, and uh, they're all outside people uh, except for the one wife. But he talks about making amends with everybody first before he talks about there is plenty we should do at home. And uh, then that's when uh, that's when he starts talking about that. And... Uh, I have to remember all the time that there's plenty I can do at home. There's plenty I can do within my own family. And uh, I forget that sometimes. I, I have seen people that have the patience of Job when it comes to a drunk. And they have, a, I mean, like a trigger, uh, hair-thin trigger with patience when it comes to a member of their family. And that always makes me sad. Because it's in the home that, that we get that unconditional love that, that was able to heal me most of the time. We, we find that there. If we have family that's still around us or that's willing to come around us again, it's, it's only because of their unconditional love for us. And yet they're the ones that, that we treat the worst. Uh, I think we call it taking advantage. 
And it's easy, you know, it's easy to take advantage of the people around us. And I, I tend to do that myself sometimes. Uh, I have to first look at this person that's with me is a person, you know, with all of the same wants and needs and feelings and emotions that I have and treat them accordingly. And it uh, talks about that a little bit in the last paragraph on this page. It says, uh, in the middle of that paragraph, it says, We feel a man is unthinking when he says sobriety is enough. And then it, uh, it talks about the former, uh, drawing a, uh, a parallel between the former and us as alcoholics. On page 83, it says at uh, that first paragraph, the principle, we must take the lead. Now, by this point, we've gone through these steps and we're beginning to make amends. And very likely there's members of our family that we are with that have not had the advantage of what we have. We have a program now to live by. We've been given a design for living. We have been reborn. All of these things have been said to us that we've gone through. I have to remind myself that out of all of us, I am probably the healthier today. I'm the one that needs to take the lead. It's through my demonstration of what's going on with me and what the program has done for me that can create the change within my home. I can be an attraction within my own home. This has happened to me. Uh, I came in the program and after uh, two, uh, maybe three years even, I had my own children that saw my life differently. And the conversation between two of the sisters went like this. Well, Mama sure has changed since she got in that AA. And my oldest daughter said, yeah, I know. No, I mean she has really changed. And my oldest daughter said, yeah, I know. So you see, they saw my life in two different ways. One was very happy about the change, and the other one did not like it at all because she could no longer control and manipulate and pull my strings and get me to react. Because, you see, our family knows what to do to get what they want. They only do what they learned. And today we have a wonderful relationship. And this came about uh, over time, just over time. And today my youngest daughter comes and talks with me about things. And she likes the change. In fact, she listened to one of my tapes and uh, she said, You know, Mama, I, would, uh, I was wondering, she said, I really enjoyed that. I was wondering if you had any more tapes like that. And I, uh, <laughs> through this little process, now this, you know, after eight years, I thought, well, you know, this ego is gone and this self-centeredness is just about gone and all. I said, well, honey, I'm sorry. That's the only one that I have of me. Did she set me straight? She said, no, I don't mean of you. I just meant any tapes like that. <laughs> so... <laughs> Sometimes, you know, our family can help us out without even knowing it. And I, I really did. I just thought she wanted to hear some more tapes of this wonderful mother of hers. 
And uh, she let me know that, no, that's not what it was all about. And I think in her own way, she was, she was reaching out. And, uh, and it was good. It was good to hear her ask for that. And she might be, you know, doing a little experimentation out there. And maybe one day I can be, of, uh, be there for her in that. I know that I can't help her with her recovery, but at least I know where to send her. Um, in fact, I tried to help her with Al-Anon, and uh, she called, talking to me, and I said, I can get you the number of an Al-Anon over in, uh, close by you. And I did that. And, uh, and I called, and I gave her the phone number, and uh, she didn't go. And, of course, I was hurt for that, because I, I know that she needs some help. And I think she knows she needs some help, but she's just not ready yet. And she doesn't really know where she belongs yet. And that's decisions that she has to make. Okay. Uh, Down at uh, the bottom of that paragraph, it says, it gives us a principle. And then uh, we're going to get a prayer. And this is uh, a morning prayer in our meditation. So you're going to find it on your sheet listed kind of like that. It says, so we clean house with the family, and that's the principle. And then the prayer is, asking each morning in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindness, and love. So that's the second prayer that we have asked God for tolerance and patience. The first one, it says, you know, that uh, if we ask God to show us what we can do for others, He's going to show us how to be patient and tolerant have a tolerant and patient view of all of these people who we got resentments against (laughs) even if we can't forgive them yet at least we're going to be able to tolerate them this next principle is one that uh, really came to light for me when I was going through this process after my uh, when I was working on this this workshop and my recovery uh, from my problem other than alcoholism and it says the spiritual life is not a theory we have to live it And I learned uh, when I was young and in school, English uh, was one of my better subjects. And uh, I learned at a young age in English that where we put the emphasis in a sentence, it can change the meaning. It cannot change the words, but it can change the meaning. And, uh, And I found that this happened. And God revealed to me at that time exactly that. Um... That one little short sentence that says, we have to live it. If I put the emphasis on have, it means it becomes a must for me. I don't have a choice. I have, I have to live it. It's a must. If I put the emphasis on we and I say, I like to change the we's to I because it's talking to me. It says, I have to live it. And that means that I'd, I have to live it. If no one else in my life lives... Um, you know, the spiritual life. I have to live it. And the third one is, uh, if I put the emphasis on live, it says, I have to live it. And that says to me that I have to be a part of life. It's easy to practice uh, spiritual principles sitting in an AA meeting. It's not so easy if I have to go into my home or my job or my family that's not in recovery and practice the spiritual life. The way I live it is is that I become a part of life. 
And the way I experienced that at that time was when I went to have my first surgery, my doctor, uh, you know, we like to know the outcome before it even uh, the surgery took place. I wanted to know what was going to happen. So he was real good. He explained my recovery to me and mapped it out and told me basically that it was going to be a year. It's going to take me a year to recover. And he let me know what was going to happen in that year. And uh, what happened to me was uh, I kind of put my life on hold. And I didn't drop out of AA. I had women that came to my house and they brought meetings in and every once in a while I went out and I was a DCM. I was making a lot of phone calls. I wanted to resign, but my sponsor said no. You know, sponsors do that sometimes. And uh, so I remained a DCM anyway and uh, I uh, did what I had to do most of the time over the telephone. And... uh, through all of it, I, really, I never missed but I think one district meeting and I, I uh, didn't miss any area assemblies even because I was able to do what I had to do like it fell all in between time. But what happened was that I wasn't living life. I had put my life on hold and everything that would come up, it was always in my mind that, well, in a year I'm going to do this. In a year I'm going to do that. When I get over this, I'm going to do something else. And through the process of it, a lot of things had happened, and I just wasn't being a part of life anymore. And that's when this began to take on meaning for me. So um, when I realized that I had to, I had to look at exactly what I had to do to fit myself, to be of maximum service, and to become fit, and how I was going to be a part of life in uh, in the condition that I was in. And through that, in talking with the sponsor and with the women, this is how I happened to start uh, another workshop in uh, in my home. And uh, and so, since I couldn't get out and go, in and through that and talking with the sponsor and with the women this is how I happened to start uh, another workshop in uh, in my home and uh, and so since I couldn't get out and go to the women that I sponsored they came to me so once a week I was committed to a meeting in my home even though I couldn't get out and we would get in the big book and we would uh, we work the steps together for the first time that was the first time we had worked the steps together and had an open fist step and it, uh, all of these little things were just spiritual exercises that enabled me to be a part of life and continue to grow spiritually, even though I was, uh, I was in that condition that I was in. Uh, we get an example in, in that same paragraph in the middle of, of uh, walking the walk again. It says, our behavior will convince them more than our words. I have found, and I've talked about this several times, it is easy to talk about this program. You know, it's not easy to live a spiritual life. And just making the commitment scared the hell out of me. (laughs) You know, it's easy to say, yeah, I want a spiritual life, but do I want to do the things it takes to live a spiritual life? And that's real scary sometimes. You know, it says what it takes. It takes changing everything, everything. And that's all on you. 
was what I had. And, you know, we tend to be comfortable with what we have just because we know it. The scary, scary thing about change is we don't know what's going to be there. And uh, so the only way to change is to experience it. And it's been my experience that most of the time it, it is better. I lived in a, a cliffhanging situation for so long in my last marriage that one of the hardest things I had to deal with was the peace. There was always something going on in my life, always some activity. It wasn't always good, but there was excitement. <laughs> and when it was taken away, it kind of made my life kind of boring, you know. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go home. I mean, there's not going to be any screaming and yelling and hollering and fighting. And, you know, I'm just going to sit there and what? What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to. I told my daughter one time, I can see I'm going to be a little old lady doing handwork, you know, and my compressor had broken. I couldn't fix it. I didn't have any money. And I said, I can see me right now. I won't be able to pay my utility bill. I'll be sitting here sweating and sewing. <laughs> by candlelight and that's how I saw my life (laughs) right in the beginning because I mean there was nothing going on in my life and um, what really was I wasn't having fun (laughs) I wanted to have some fun and it wasn't until I got in the book it said you can still have some fun we are not a glum lot and maybe it was the group I belonged to they tended to be a glum lot and uh then I went and I met a bunch of people at area assembly, and that's when we started having fun. <laughs> so uh, down at the bottom of the page, we get a bunch of promises. Uh, it tells us how our behavior should be throughout life to start with in a principle. It says, we should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. And uh, then it gives us some principles. I mean, a promise from those principles. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. Uh, you know, when I came in here, I <coughs> we hear a lot about uh, it's always my fault. Well, you know, one of one of the promises that's not written out as a promise is it says that you know uh, our troubles are of our own making, and the promise in that is the hope that says, well, if if I'm the cause of my problems, you don't have to change for my problems to get better. <laughs> I always thought you had to change for my problems to get better. And it says that my troubles are my own making, so I'm the only one who has to change for my troubles to get better, for my problem troubles to go away. You don't have to change. So in a way, that's a, that's a promise. I have a dear friend that just swears by that, and he always calls me on it. But uh, when I first came here, there were three things that helped me with this uh, being sensible and tactful and considerate and humble and to stop crawling and I used to say groveling (laughs) for any little crumb that anybody wanted to throw my way and uh, I martyred myself a lot and I got a lot of of, uh, I got a lot of mileage out of that a lot of mileage out of that Uh, but what eventually happened was the price was too strong for the rewards that I got and no one ever changes unless the pain outweighs the reward. And I, the first time I heard that, I thought it was a crock. You know, well, what did I get out of that? You know, I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want to go through that. I couldn't see any rewards in it at all. 
But the kind of rewards that I was getting was, look what a good woman that is. I don't know how she can put up with him. (laughs) See, one of the things that it did was, in my mind, if you looked bad, it made me look better. And uh, since it was important for me to look good because I thought I was so bad, I was always having to do more and produce and be do all of this stuff just to feel equal. I mean, I wasn't trying to feel better. I just wanted to feel equal. That's where I was in my life. Uh, one of one of the things that I had to get straight. You, you need to break or something. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I that I had to get straight and that helped me take responsibility for my troubles was a three-part, and I, I give this as a free gift to the women that I start sponsoring, and I have them write it down so they can remember it, and if they can't remember it, I have them paste it on their mirror or shelf, and it goes something like this. I always have a choice. Nobody did anything to me that I did not allow. No one is a doormat if you don't lay down and let someone walk on you. And when I could get that clear, very clear in my mind, I could take responsibility for everything in my life. Everything. Everything in the past and everything today and everything to come. I don't have a choice of, of the drink anymore. But there are some choices in my life. We had a speaker at the state convention and she said to build self-esteem, we do esteemable acts. And I, that was just wonderful. That, I mean, I like that. I've never heard that before. And you see, that's exactly what happens. When we stop crawling, when we start making choices based on a spiritual level, when we don't allow people to take advantage of us. You know, the people who respected me the least were the ones who took advantage of me the most. And I have seen that demonstrated over and over and over. I know that love is unconditional, but respect is earned. It's that simple. And uh, I've had to earn the respect of the people in my life again. They've loved me through all of it unconditionally. But today I don't have to be servile and scraping. I can say my mind and because I'm not going out with, with ulterior motives. And I can, I can say, you know, not be afraid that they're not going to love me anymore if I say I, I really can't go to the birthday party. I love you, but I just can't be there. I have other commitments. And that's okay. We have some, uh, some more promises after that one, and it's conditioned with, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, and I'm sure everybody knows these promises, because these are the ones that we usually hear about. We never hear about the rest of them. And that's sad, because there's a lot of promises with all of the steps and throughout the book. We will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom 
and a new happiness. We will not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. We will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. Now, please make note that it does not say we will be rich. It says that the fear of being poor will go away. But having a job helps that. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And uh, these are the nine step promises. It says a little later on the condition of that is they will always materialize if we work for them. But it's not promised until we are half through with this phase of our development, which is the ninth step, that phase. The next paragraph says this thought brings us to step 10. And step 10 has 16 promises in it. Um, In this step, we're going to find out what our next function is now. We get a promise right away. It says, we vigorously commenced this way of life as we cleaned up the past. Now, this way of life is what they're getting ready to describe, how we're going to live our life from here on, because we're on a spiritual basis. And the promise of that is we have entered the world of the spirit. This is the fourth dimension. So by this time, we should be in that fourth dimension, the world of the spirit. When we get here, it says, now I got the, my purpose is to be fit in the ninth step. In the tenth step, it says, my next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. I've heard people say that the, the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth step are um, maintenance steps. But that's not what the book says. The book says right here that this is going to help help me to grow and since the 10th step is coming up that tends me to believe that this means it's a growth step <laughs> and I'm going to be able to grow and uh, I'm going to be able to grow spiritually I'm going to be able to grow in understanding I'm going to be able to grow in effectiveness the way I'm able to carry this message and uh, fulfill my purpose is going to become more effective if I can commence this way of life now And then it tells us how to do that. The principle of it is continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And we get a prayer to help us achieve that. It says, when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. Um, I see this kind of like as a safety net for step four and five. Um, really it's like four, five, six, and seven because it gives us a process to take care of any new mistakes 
what it says here is that this is for any new mistakes. So we've gone through that fourth and fifth step to get rid of all the old mistakes. And this is going to help keep the slate clean with any new mistakes. And in this one paragraph right here, it gives us every one of the steps. Uh, that first principle there is um, is the, the fourth step. And then when we ask God to remove them, that's, that's uh, the seventh step. We discuss them with someone immediately, and that's the fifth step. We make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone, and that's the eighth step. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help, and that's the twelfth step. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So right there, it's giving me a code to live by from now on. No matter what, love and tolerance will be my code. With the people in the fellowship, with the people in my home, with my children, with my boss, with my pigeons, with my sponsor. She says things to me like, when I'm talking about how much I'm learning, how much are you applying? Sometimes I forget I'm above that. (laughs) You know, I think, well, I just need to know it. I don't need to do it. So then we get a whole nother set of promises. And these are the 10th step promises, these 16 promises that come here after the 10th step. It says, we have ceased fighting everything and anyone, anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We, sell, we will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as, it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. In other words, we don't have to learn how to act that way. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It comes. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn, we have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. And then these promises are conditioned or warning, if you want to call it that way. This is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Now, uh, we get an example of how to stay in fit spiritual condition and uh, on page 156. When uh, when it talks about uh, the sixth sense, you know we have we have uh, five senses. They are sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell. And that sixth sense is the intuitiveness. Uh, that it's another sense that comes from uh, from the spirit. In other words, uh, I use this paragraph, and I'll just share this with you because it's been helpful to me. And I use this paragraph since alcohol, and it's used in in reference to alcohol. I can substitute alcohol with any obsession in my life. And uh, for women, it's usually men. And so I just just put their name in place of alcohol. And if his name happens to be uh, John, 
then it would read like, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even John. And we can go through this paragraph and see what can happen if we use this spiritual uh, process on any obsession that we might have. Maybe it's an obsession about a job we have. Maybe it's an obsession about something that we want, you know, uh, a thing. And we can just substitute alcohol for that obsession and it, it will work. Uh, I made reference to uh, keeping in fit spiritual condition. And I, I want to refer to that now in case we don't get to it on page 156. It talks about how Bill and, uh, and Bob stayed uh, spiritually fit. And uh, it's the paragraph in the middle of the page. It starts with, but life. It says, but life was not easy for the two friends. And this is uh, Dr. Bob and Bill. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. Both saw that they must keep spiritually active. And it tells, it goes on to say how they do that. And this is how they did that. One day they called up a friend, called up a head nurse at a local hospital. They explained their need and inquired if she had a first class alcoholic prospect. So the way that Bill and Bob stayed spiritually fit and active was to work with other drunks. In case you're wondering how to do that. And uh, I thought... uh, You know, it goes back to, once again, the importance of always, always, always working with the the still-suffering alcoholic, whether he be dry or sober. Then in the uh, bottom of that that paragraph, or like kind of in the middle, we get another principle. And it it refers again to uh, the keystone, really, that we haven't really used in our arch yet. It says, every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. You know, when I'm carrying the vision of God's will, really what I'm doing is I'm carrying the vision of what I think God's will is. Hopefully by this time, when we pray for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out, that God mostly just has revealed to me that what I am doing today is God's will. That's what he has shown to me. If I get up and I go to a meeting and I, you know, I practice these principles in my home and nothing exciting, I mean, nothing overwhelming happens in my life. It just seems like nothing's a big deal anymore. This is just my life. Uh, Somebody said once they had an AA kind of day. And what that meant was, well, they got up and they did their prayer and meditation and then they probably talked to someone they sponsored or they talked to their sponsor and then they went to a meeting and then they probably met, you know, with someone they sponsored and they went worked in the book and then that night they might have gone off to a district meeting or, you know, a birthday party and then they went home and they had just had an AA kind of day. And that's kind of how my life is today. Every day is just, you know, an AA kind of day. The phone rings and I never know who it is. Most of the time I think when the phone is ringing, well, I wonder what they want. <laughs> Let me get honest here, you know. I was going to say, well, someone needs me. And then when I hang up, I realize how much I needed them. 
and that's that's how my life goes today. Um, after that, uh, we get a prayer whenever we're thinking about God's will, you know, and we're carrying it into our activities. And it says, how can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. And that's what it's all about. God's, you know, the vision of my of God's will for me is his will, whatever comes up, you know, thy will be done and I'm going to be OK with it. And and. Um, you know, just thinking about it right now, that's that's just about how it is all the time. Just whatever happens, it tends to be okay because I, I know that it's it's God's will for me. Then it, it says this again about the promises. First it said they'll always materialize if we work for them. And in here it's stated a different way. It says... Um, one place it said before the promises, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, now it says if we have carefully followed directions, not suggestions, directions, this is what's going to happen. And once again, cause and effect. We have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. We have become God conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. And that's that, that's that uh, sixth sense after the sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell, that intuitiveness, that God intuitiveness. But we must go further, and that means more action. And so we get to uh, step 11. In step 11, we have six promises. It starts right off, though, uh, with saying that uh, step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. It's just a suggestion, though, remember, even though they don't suggest anything else for step 11. We, should, we shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. In other words, the more we do, the better. Better men than we are using it constantly. And so I try to remember that all the time. Prayer is not a weakness, it's a strength. The 11th step starts at night, and it says very clearly, when we retire at night, we work the first part, we do the first part of the 11th step. And it gives us some things, and it calls it a review. And uh, it says we constructively review our day. And that doesn't mean that we destructively, you know, we don't try to tear it down. We constructively, we look at all of the assets and the liabilities of the day. A daily review is kind of like a daily inventory. Uh, Okay. So what we do is uh, we ask ourselves some questions. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should have been discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others? Of what we could pack into the stream of life? Now what happens as you go through... Uh, the longer you stay sober and the more you uh, strive for progress in this spiritual life, 
is if you're going to be honest on this daily review, at the end of the day, there's going to be some times where the answers are going to be yes. Um, And maybe some of them, the answer is going to be no where they should be. If it says, was I resentful or selfish or dishonest or afraid? Maybe I can say, well, yeah, I was, you know, I was a little resentful when this happened or... uh, No, I wasn't selfish today. I acted unselfishly all day today. Uh, Was I dishonest today? No, I wasn't dishonest, not with others and not with myself. Uh, Was I afraid? Yes. Fear is still a big deal with me. Uh, That is usually the part of my inventory that I still have plenty of things to write down. You know, in one part earlier in our book, it says that we are driven by a hundred forms of fear and other things. And what has happened is that maybe I didn't have a hundred fears when I got here. Maybe I just had about 50. And maybe two or three of those are gone, but I might have 25 more that I, that I didn't have when I got here. And I've experienced that. I, I took a trip by myself to go and do this workshop up in Montana. And for weeks before, I was in fear because I was going by myself. And uh, I don't know what it was. It was just, you know, I was afraid I'd miss my flight and I'd end up and nobody would be there. I mean, talk about imagined fear. <laughs> but what I learned through this whole process is that whether real or imagined, um, you know, fear is fear. And the only thing that overcomes a fear for me is is to say I have it and I can't do anything about it and ask God to remove it like the book says. And so pretty much, uh, you know, I, today I get through some days where I don't have fear. But a lot of days I don't do much. I'm disabled now and I'm not, I don't get out a lot and get into a lot of fear from things in my life. I don't do a lot of strange things. <laughs> But I know if I was still having to get up and go out on a job and, and uh, you know, if I was financially responsible for everything in my life and the huge medical bills that I might have, and uh, I, I think I'd get into some fear maybe about that. Just like I said, it's a lot easier, it's a lot easier uh, to be rid of our financial insecurity if we have money coming in. It's a little bit harder if we don't. So I think that's when we really start uh, learn how much we really uh, rely on God. In the middle of the page, it says, "But we must not. We must be careful not to drift into war- worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. It does a lot of other things. It, it tends to corrode my spirits whenever I drift into. Uh, that's a principle." And uh, it's, it's just, you know, that that can be a corroding factor in my life. And it makes me a, a very morbid person. No one wants to be around someone who wears the world on their shoulders. You know, they prefer to be around people that are uplifting and, and, uh, and happy and uh, optimistic, I think the word is. So uh, I try to do that today. It says, after making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. And that's the prayer in there for that part of the 11th step. 
Then we get uh, the second half of the, the 11th step where it says on awakening. It was always a little confusing to me the way Bill wrote this out, just like in the seventh step. He wrote to be careful not to take it after we took it. And then here it says uh, before we begin, but he doesn't put that in there until he tells us what we're going to do. So I always like to start this kind of like a couple of sentences down in the paragraph when it says, Uh, Before we begin, so that means to me the minute I open my eyes, I ask God to direct my thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. So when I start immediately with the prayer, then I can think about the 24 hours ahead. And I can consider my plans for the day. Then, under these conditions, because I have asked God to divorce myself from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives, and I've thought about, then I've thought about that, under these conditions, I get that promise. We can employ our mental faculties with assurance. I can be more assured because I've already asked God to separate me from all of those, of those negative motives when I'm thinking about my day. Um, it says also a principle there for after all God gave us brains to use so right here it's telling us that we can begin to think and use our mental faculties with assurance our thought life this is the promise our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives So that's why I want to ask God to remove the wrong motives before I even start thinking about my day and planning my day. Today, I don't have a lot of plans for each day when I wake up. I used to have a lot of plans. And today, my my life is very simple and uh, pretty well uncluttered. And uh, But as I have grown spiritually, I have learned that My plans can include more than activities. I thought my plans for today were, well, I was going to get up and shower and do my meditation and, uh, you know, get in the car and go to work. And then I had to meet with so-and-so at this time and I had to have lunch at this time. And then so-and-so was coming over and I was going to have a fifth step and then I was going to go to a meeting. And that was my plans for today. Well, a lot of days those things do happen. I don't go to work. I don't do that. If I do any kind of work, I call it play, and I have a little room where I get to do things that I always wanted to do for free and for fun, and today I get to do that. And uh, so I have a little room where I can do that, and that's that's what I call play. And sometimes maybe I'll have uh, one of my girls come over, and we work in the book, and then I might go to a noon meeting. But it's my life is just really based simply today. But what helps, what has been a wonderful spiritual tool for me in this step is that I can set some intents for my behavior. And it goes like this. Today, I plan to be kinder. Today, I plan to be more loving to my mate 
Today I plan to be more generous. I, I tend to be selfish with my stuff. I like my stuff. <laughs> it's not because it's worth a lot. It's usually not worth anything to anybody but me. But, you know, I'm just one of these people who I just love my stuff. And... Uh, I kind of had a problem with that when Bobby and I got together because he don't love stuff. <laughs> you know, and if he messes up my favorite pot, it doesn't bother him at all. I know some of you women who cook can understand that. You know, if you have a special pot that you cook something in, you know, that's the only thing you can use to cook that thing in. And then all of a sudden one day it's gone because somebody decided it needed to be used for something else. That disturbs me. And, uh, and after all, he didn't even ask if he could use it. And it's my pot. <laughs> so, you see, I just tend to claim stuff. And... Uh, it can get out of hand sometimes. So sometimes I think, you know, that's that's part of my intent to not I'm going to be more generous and I'm not going to. One of my character defects is that I, I love things too much. And uh, before I got here, I tended to value uh, many times things more than I did people. And so my intent is that I won't do that today. Today I plan not to do that. And then I ask for God to come with me and help me achieve my plans. And a lot of days that's the only plans that I have. And you know what? A lot of days I end up and all of my plans have taken place. And that's wonderful. And the key to that is that I've asked God to come with me. And he makes it possible for that to happen. It doesn't happen every day. You know, it just doesn't. But I am progressing, I think. Uh, after that paragraph, we, uh, it says, when in thinking about our day, we may face indecision. And on your list, you have a prayer for indecision there. It says, here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or a decision. After we do that, what happens? The book says we relax and take it easy. And what that has come to mean for me, and this happened early on in sobriety because somebody shared this with me. They said, well, you just do what's in front of you to do. And at first, it was a conscious effort for me to uh, figure out what I was going to do. Okay, what's in front of me to do? And maybe I had a week's laundry. Maybe I had a sink full of dishes. Uh, Maybe I was petrified to my chair and I had to tell myself, well, you're going to get up and go to work. And that's how this came.